Spirit that has been so precious to me personally, but also so precious to the church. We're going to be looking at Luke 15. So if you have your Bibles, why don't you turn with me to Luke 15. I'll be reading verse 1 and 2, then 11 to 32. Give me a moment as I open my Bible as well. Uh, there will also be an outline that will be uh, flashed on the screen, so you may want to use um, that outline to follow along the sermon. Luke chapter 15, as I read it, uh, you'll find this very, very familiar. Luke chapter 15, verse 1 and 2 says this, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Come with me to verse 11. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, A severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your servant. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older brother was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, He heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you. And I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened cow for him? And he said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me as we seek God's help to understand his word this morning? Father, we thank you that this is your word. And we pray that it would speak clearly to our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
I read an article in, on Christianity Today uh, this week by a man by the name of Ed Stetzer. Now, Ed Stetzer is the executive director of the Billy Graham Center, and he's a dean at Wheaton College. Now, Ed Stetzer wrote about the coronavirus crisis as it in, impacts the church, and, one of the, and, and this is what he says. The coronavirus crisis will be the most significant historical event in our lifetime. It will indeed be a dark hour for many we lead and for many in our cities and communities. He's saying not only is it a health crisis, but the repercussions of the coronavirus crisis economically, socially, and politically will be great. This is indeed a very dark hour. And that says it goes on to say, not all churches will survive this crisis. Not all churches will survive this crisis. Most will recover and reemerge. But how they recover and how they reemerge will depend on two things. Circumstances that are out of our control, but also how leaders navigate this time of crisis. And then that's, that's, that's a personal prayer. He says, my prayer for every church is for them to rise up for such a time as this by sharing and showing the love of Christ that they would love well both Christians and non-Christians alike. You see what that setter is saying? This is a real problem. This is a dark, dark hour, and it will be for a long time. Not all churches will survive this crisis. God has not promised that every church will survive. He's not promised that one covenant church will survive this crisis. Most will, but it depends on circumstances, number one, that are out of control, but it also depends on what we do in this time of need. And friends, what we need to be doing in this time of need is to recognize this as an opportunity for such a time as this to share and show the love of Christ. Friends, my heart is that we would learn to love well during this period, that we would love people, both Christians and non-Christians alike. It's our third anniversary today, and if you spent any time in this church, you have heard me quote uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, especially this quote, uh, that he, this, this quote from a sermon that he gave uh, when he first became a pastor. Uh, Lloyd-Jones was a successful young doctor. He had a great career ahead, but he gave that up to become a pastor and a preacher. And one of the first sermons that he ever preached was to a group of young people. And the Lord used this particular sermon to draw me into full-time ministry. And this is what Lloyd-Jones said. Lloyd-Jones said in that one sermon to a group of young people, my one great attempt will be to prove to you not merely that Christianity is reasonable, but that ultimately, faced as we all are at some time or other with the stupendous fact of life and death, nothing else is reasonable. My thesis will ever be that face-to-face with the deeper questions of life and death, All our knowledge and our culture will fail us, and that our only hope of peace is to be found in the crucified Christ. The good doctor is telling us that our only source of true hope is to be found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And friends, I know you've heard this many times from me. Perhaps, particularly in this season, these words would be a special comfort to you that your only true comfort can be found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is a truth that's pertinent to us today as God's people in the midst of this pandemic. But it is also a truth that doesn't just soothe us, 
but empowers and enables us, us as his people, to love well. And friends, that's the reason why I want to bring us to Luke 15 today. Luke 15 has meant something really special to me. It has awakened my eyes to the goodness and the grace of God. And somehow, Luke 15 has a peculiar power. It is a peculiar power not just to clarify the gospel to us, to help us see what it is, but to make it compelling upon our hearts. Because friends, what we need is both clarity and a sense of how compelling the gospel is. A good friend of mine once said that the gospel has to be burning hot and radioactive in our hearts. If the gospel isn't burning hot and radioactive in our hearts, we will not experience and know the love, the grace, the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. And we will not be able to serve and love others in the way that we are called. Friends, in the midst of this pandemic, I think Luke 15 is calling us to be a prodigal church, to be a generous church. Now, friends, the word prodigal, many people think, means wayward. It means you're going astray. But if you actually look up the meaning of the word, the word prodigal actually means extravagant, recklessly extravagant. Now, there's a negative connotation to that, and we see that in this story. The prodigal son squandered his father's wealth. And perhaps that's why this term prodigal has become so negative. It's been so closely associated with this prodigal son. But friends, there's also a very positive way that this word is used. In this story, we have a father who spends his grace extravagantly on this undeserving son. He spends it all to bring the sinner home. That's a positive way of looking at the word prodigal. And that's the term and that's the definition that we're looking at. I'm calling us, friends, to be a prodigal church in this pandemic. I'm calling us to be extravagant in giving our time, our talent, and our our treasure to serve the needs of others as God, by his gospel, has served us. I'm calling us, friends, to be the kind of church that is for others, not just for ourselves. And in order to do that, we need to see three things from this text. The waywardness of the sons, the welcome of the father, and the witness of the church. Waywardness, welcome, and witness. Come with me to Luke 15, verse 1. This gives us very important information and background for this parable. It says in Luke 15, verse 1, that tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to Jesus. Now, who were these? Who were the tax collectors and sinners? These were the corrupt and immoral people of the day. These were the kind of people uh, in society where upstanding members of society would sneer at. They're corrupt. They're immoral. They did not live according to the standards of the law. And yet, friends, these were the people who were drawn to Jesus. On the other hand, verse 2 says that the Pharisees and scribes grumbled. Now, who were the Pharisees and who were the scribes? These were the pious and religious people of the day. The Pharisees were one of the strictest sects in the Jewish religion. They memorized the first five books of Moses. They were pious. They were religious people. But as they saw the corrupt and immoral drawing near to Jesus, the text says in verse 2 that they grumbled. They were unhappy. They could not perceive that Jesus, this holy man, 
could be hanging out and spending time with sinners. And so they grumbled. And this, friends, is the context in which Jesus then tells one story in three parts. In verse 4 to 7, the first part of the story, he talks about a lost sheep. There's a sheep that's gone lost. In verses 8 to 10, a lost coin. And then here in verses 11 to 32, he talks about two lost sons. In every part of this story, something is lost and someone goes out to find what is lost and bring it in. This morning, we'll be focusing on verses 11 to 32. So come with me to verse 11. In verse 11, the writer of Luke says, there was a man who had two sons. Now, this parable is, is, is well known as the parable of the prodigal son. But actually, there isn't just one son. There are two sons. The man had two sons. Now, verse 12 says that the younger son comes to the father and says, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. Now, friends, when does the share of property come to someone? This younger son is basically asking for his inheritance. The share of the property comes to someone when the father dies. When the father dies. So what this son is doing in approaching the father and asking him for his property now He's saying to the father, I wish you were dead. I want my money now. Now, this is despicable. He's saying to the father, I want your things, but I don't want you. So give it to me now. And of course, given the audience that Jesus is talking to, on the one hand, the Pharisees and scribes were grumbling. On the other hand, the tax collectors and sinners that were drawing near to him, This metaphor of the younger son likely refers to the tax collectors and sinners, the corrupt and the immoral of society. Those who had taken money that wasn't theirs, those who had lived immoral lifestyle. This son comes to the father and defies him and says to him, I wish you were dead and I want my money now. This is despicable. But you know what? The father gives the son his inheritance. He gets it. And what does he do? He takes his inheritance and he goes to a far country. And the text tells us in verse 13 that he squanders all of it in reckless living. Now, what did he do? Well, his older brother fills in the details for us, as older siblings uh, tend to do. Look at verse 30. It says, this son of yours devoured the property with prostitutes. He blew all of the father's wealth on wine, women, and song. He lived a highly immoral lifestyle. He was reckless. He squandered it all, and he was left high and dry. And then verse 14 tells us something worse happens. A famine arose. Now, can you imagine if you were him? You've gotten your inheritance, you've squandered it all, and suddenly this great pandemic sweeps the earth that makes it even worse. Here you are, not only at rock bottom, but below rock bottom. You've squandered the wealth, and then a famine has arisen. You have no choice, son of rich man, but to hire yourself out to a man in the country. Verse 15, And this man sends this Jewish boy to feed 
pigs. This man sends the Jewish boy to feed pigs. Now that's already a great affront to the youngest son. But the fact is, he's so malnourished that as he looks at the pots that he's feeding the pigs, verse 16, he gets hungry. And he longs to eat the pods that he's using to feed the pigs with. Now, this is despicable. And this is really, really rock bottom. But you know what, friends? As you look at the story, he deserved it, didn't he? He deserved what he got. In verse 17, it says he came to his senses. He thought of his father. He thought of his home. He longs to go home. And so, his youngest son starts to make a plan. He says to himself, I'm going to go home to my father. But when I meet him, verse 18 to 19, I'll say three things to him. I'll say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and earth. I've sinned. I'll say the second thing, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And then I'll say, treat me. Treat me as one of your hired servants. His youngest son had squandered it all. He came to his senses, wanted to go home, and he, and he made a plan. He made a plan to make restitution in order to get back into his father's house. I'm going to say I've sinned. I'm going to say I'm not worthy. And I'm going to say, don't treat me as a son anymore. I'm not worthy to be a son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. You know what the younger son was trying to do? He was trying to earn his way back into the father's house. He knew he'd sinned. He knew he had to make restitution for that sin. And so he made a plan to earn his way back into the father's house. But then a surprise comes in verse 20. As he is walking toward his father on his way home, the father sees him. And the father can't believe it. It's my youngest son. The text says he felt compassion. And the father ran and embraced him and kissed him. He begins his speech. For Father, I, I, I have sinned. But the father doesn't let him finish the speech. Look at verse 22 to 23. In the middle of the speech, the father says to his servants, put a robe on him, put a ring on him, put shoes on my son. Friends, even before his restitution and his repentance is complete, the father has embraced him and the father has ordered that he be dressed in his original robe, his original ring, his original shoe. He's been brought back into the house as a son. Friends, this boy has brought great shame upon himself and upon his family by his squandering and his reckless living. In an instant, in a moment, the father draws back and restores him to a place of honor. Puts on the robe again. Puts on the ring again. Puts on the shoes again. This is the father saying to the world, This is my son. And friends, that is what the Father does for sinners who come back to Him. But more than that, what does the Father do? He orders that the fattened calf be slaughtered. Now, later on in the story, we know that the older brother gets very angry that the fattened calf is slaughtered. But we don't quite understand what the problem is. Isn't it just a cow? Now, my 
uh, father uh, grew up in quite a poor uh, family. Uh, my grandfather came from Chaozhou and he, he was a fisherman. And uh, in, in the kampong that they lived in, meat uh, was very scarce. In fact, they would only eat meat uh, during special occasions, like Chinese New Year or when there was a special offering at the temple. And my father tells me that my ama would take these meat offerings and actually preserve this meat with salt uh, because it was so precious. They hardly ever ate meat. It was only something that they got uh, during special occasions. The rest of the time uh, is usually vegetables, porridge, and maybe some fish. So we don't understand that today because we eat meat so freely. But meat in, in those days was a real luxury. And it was not much different uh, in first century Palestine. Meat itself was luxurious. It was something that only the very rich could afford. Now, among the different types of meat, veal was the most precious. The fattened calf was the most expensive, was the most delicious. It was something you would only roll out when you wanted to give great honor to someone. Uh, some commentators say that you would never actually uh, kill a fattened calf for a family celebration. Usually it's someone, a guest of great honor that comes. You kill the fattened calf. But here, the father kills the fattened calf for the one who had squandered his wealth. For the one who had been immoral, who had come back. This is an extravagant, prodigal display of grace of love, of mercy. This is what God does for the prodigal. He restores him. He calls a party and he celebrates. And this, my friends, is what our God is like. But friends, you know, this is really shocking. And this is really offensive, especially to religious people. Look at the text. Verse 25 introduces us to a son, a second son, the oldest son. Now, this son was coming back from the field. He hears all these festivities and discovers not only that the father has received the younger brother back, he's killed the fattened calf for him. He's throwing an extravagant party for this son. And the older brother is flabbergasted. He's shocked. He's disgusted. Verse 28 says, he's angry. He's angry. And he refuses to enter the party. He goes outside and he sulks. Just like verse 2, the Pharisees and tax collectors who grumbled that Jesus was drawing sinners. Friends, who is the older brother in this story? The religious the Pharisees and tax collectors that grumbled that Jesus was drawing tax collectors and sinners. The Pharisees and scribes could not stand it. They grumbled. Now, think about it. This kind of behavior, refusing to go into a party that your father has thrown and going out and sulking publicly, in that culture, that would have brought great shame on the father. The father had every right at that point in time to discipline his older son. But he doesn't. It says in verse 28 that he goes out to this son, this older son who has been so angry, and he gently tries 
to entreat him and persuade him to come in. But verse 29 to 30, the older brother lets out a rant. He says to his father, these many years I've served you and I never disobeyed your command that you have never given me a young goat that I may celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, not even my brother, this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened cow for him? You killed the fattened cow for him? How about me? I've obeyed you all my life. I've served you. I've done everything you wanted. You never even gave me a goat, and you give him the fattened calf? He was angry at the father. But look at what the father says to him in verse 31. Oh, that is mine, is your son. It's always been yours. But friends, this exposes the heart of the older brother, doesn't it? Because on the surface, he seemed like the model son. He never disobeyed his father. He served him diligently. But when he says, you never even gave me a young goat... It reveals his heart, and it reveals that actually he's not much different from his younger brother. You see, both brothers wanted the father's wealth and things, but they didn't really love the father. They didn't really want the father. The younger son tried to get the father's wealth by defiance. I'll defy you, father, and I'll get what I truly want. The older brother, on the other hand, tried to gain the father's wealth by compliance. Two different approaches, but both of them wanted the same thing. They wanted the father's things, but friends, they didn't really want the father. They didn't really love the father. They were just using the father to get what they really wanted. Both sons, friends, were wayward. Both sons were prodigal in different ways. Tim Keller puts it this way. One son tried to gain the father's wealth by self-discovery. That's a younger son. I'm going to go and I'm going to squander my... I'm just going to live it up. But the other tried to gain the father's wealth by moral conformity. But neither truly wants the father's heart. Neither self-discovery nor moral conformity really gets us to the heart of the Father. They were both friends using the Father to get what they truly wanted. See, friends, this teaches us that God is not only interested in what we do, He's interested in the motivation of our hearts. Now, the younger son, it's very obvious that he's he's defying the Father, right? He just outright defies the Father. The older son is also defying the father in his heart, but on the surface, it all looks good. And what God is saying is, he's not just here for moral compliance. He wants your heart. The motivation of the heart must be love for him. That is why we obey his commandments. So although the older son seemed to do everything right on the surface, 
He said, these many years I've served you and I never disobeyed your command. Dig beneath the surface, surface, and what you have is a heart that is devoid of love for God. I went for a counseling, uh, kind of a seminar a few weeks ago, and um, the person teaching told, gave us an illustration, a story that, that I found uh, very helpful as I thought about my own heart. And perhaps you've encountered this kind of a story before. You have uh, this girl who has grown up in a Christian family, a very strict Christian family, and she's grown up well, she does everything well, she reads a Bible, she says her prayers, she never curses, uh, she goes to church every Sunday, she does all the right things. She's a very good girl. And then she grows up, and then she goes to university, either locally or overseas. And suddenly, it's almost like there's a complete change. She starts partying, she stops going to church, uh, she starts hanging out with the wrong type of people. She starts getting involved in things that you would never expect her to get involved in. And the parents are surprised. They say, you know, haven't we raised her well? Haven't we given her everything that she needs? Surely she knows that these things are wrong. What has changed? What has changed? Well, on the surface, well, a lot has changed. But perhaps what hasn't changed is her heart. You see, when you are raised in a conservative Christian family and your heart longs for approval, your heart longs to be told that, that you're doing well, that you're doing good, what do you do? In a conservative Christian family, you do everything that mommy and daddy says. You do everything that the pastor says. You do everything that the church expects of you. Why? Not because you really want to do these things, but because your heart longs for human approval. Your heart longs to be looked at by the pastor, by your parents, by your peers, to say, wow, you are so good. So what you are really longing for there is human approval, not the approval of God. And then when you're taken out of this context, and here you are in another setting, and you're still longing for approval... What would you do in that new setting? You do whatever your peers say is right and acceptable and good. You'll party. You'll hang out with the wrong crowd. You'll not go to church. You'll do all of those things because deep in your heart, you're longing for approval from others, not God. Now friends, what's the right approach to this? It's not to go to this person and say, hey, you sinner, well, in a sense, that's true. Lah. You, you are a sinner. You're doing all these things. And you're destroying your life. All of that is true. But to really get to the heart of the person, we have to draw near. We have to understand. And we have to say, what are you longing for? What is your heart wrapping itself around? What have you been seeking? What do you think will truly satisfy you? And then to show that person, all that is mine is yours. Verse 31, you never had to earn it in the first place. It was always yours by grace. You never had to earn the approval of the Father. All that is mine is yours. And perhaps that will melt many hearts today who are seeking approval but never getting it and always feeling like they're falling short you never had to earn it in the first place, friends. It's given to you as gift.
It's given to you as grace. See, friends, God doesn't just want your actions. God wants your heart. And both sons treated the father so poorly, didn't they? Both sons were defying the father. But look at the kindness and goodness of the father. Let's look at point two, the welcome of the father. I want you to notice a few things about the father. Come with me to verse 12. Now this is when the son, the younger son comes to him and says to him, give me my property now. Now, if you were a first century Middle Eastern father, you would slap your son. But what does he do? He shows kindness. He actually divests his property and gives the son what he longs for. And this, friends, is a picture of the goodness and kindness of the father. But secondly, look at verse 20. When the son is coming home, what does the father do? It says he runs. He runs to his son. Now, friends, a first century father, the paterfamilias, does not run. He's too dignified to run. Women ran. Children ran. The animals ran. But the paterfamilias, the father, never runs. It's undignified for him to run. But in this story... The father runs. The father runs because he would rather be undignified, even obscene, than to not bring his son home. Thirdly, verses 31 and 32. Do you notice how he goes out and entreats the second son, the older brother, to come in? Again, this older brother has brought shame by refusing to be in the party. But the father goes out and says to this angry, self-righteous man, Son, you're always with me. And all is mine is yours. Verse 31. That is the kindness of the father. He welcomes the sinner home. He welcomes the self-righteous in. Friends, in this time of suffering, in this time of pain, in this time of not understanding why the world has gone the way it is, in this time where we're questioning, where are you, God? Where are you in all of this? We may not fully understand why God has allowed all of these things to happen. But what we need to see more than anything else That God remains kind. That God remains one who goes after the sinner. That God remains the one who comes out to seek and find us. Friends, God has loved us to the point of giving us his son. We may not understand what COVID-19 is doing. Why there's such great devastation. But what it cannot mean is that God is not kind. And God is not good. Friends, this is how kind and merciful our God is. He runs after the sinner. He entreats the self-righteous. He's trying to melt the hearts of both the licentious party-goer and the legalistic Pharisee. He wants to welcome both of them home. And friends, doesn't that challenge you? Because all the brother types among us 
will be challenged. That God wants the younger brother. But friends, the younger brother isn't left off the hook here either. Many of us see ourselves as the younger brother. Those self-righteous Pharisees. I'm not like them. I'm authentic. I'm real. I'm broken. I'm not like those self-righteous Pharisees. And one of the stuff happening is you become a Pharisee to the Pharisees. You become self-righteous about the self-righteous. And friends, that doesn't bring you home either. You need to see in this story the kindness of the father to both sons. The welcome of the father to both sons. To the licentious and to the legalists. The father wants both of them home. The father wants you home, my friend. Whatever you have done with your life, God wants you home. And friends, we should want to see both sons come home as well. And friends, neither son can come home unless someone goes to seek and save them. That point, the witness of the church. Remember that this is a parable in three parts. The first one, a sheep is lost, verse 4 to 7. And the shepherd leaves the 99 to seek and bring back that lost sheep. In the second, verse 8 to 10, a coin is lost. A woman scours the house and finds it, and there is great rejoicing. In this third story, a son is lost. A younger son has left the house and gone to a faraway country. So as we read the story, we need to ask the question, who? Who is going out to seek this lost son and bring him home? And as you look at the story, you see no one. No one is going out to the far country to draw this younger son home. Yes, you do it for a sheep. Yes, you do it for a coin. But would you do it for a corrupt and immoral person? No one is going out to bring the younger brother home. Who do you think is supposed to go out and bring the younger brother home? The elder brother. The elder brother. If he truly loved his father, if he truly loved his family, he would have said to his father, Father, I know your heart is broken. I know you're longing for this son. I know you're old. I will be the one who will go away into this faraway country to bring the younger brother home. Jesus is saying to the scribes and Pharisees, if you're really pious, if you're really religious, go and bring the tax collectors and the sinners home because that is true religion. But you see, friends, to bring the younger brother home would have been costly to the older brother. What did the father have to do to give the younger brother his portion of the property? He would have to have divested his wealth. That part has already been squandered. Now, for the father to bring the younger son in, it would mean that the older brother now has to share his inheritance with his younger brother. It would cost him something. And love is always costly. Seeking and saving the lost is always costly. 
And the religious and pious were not willing to bear that cost. And older brothers, like me, are not willing to bear that cost. It's too costly. And so the younger brother had no one to seek and save him. But friends, there is a true elder brother in this story. And you know who he is? He's the one telling the story. In Hebrews chapter 2 verse 11, Jesus says that he was not ashamed to call us brothers. You see, friends, Jesus is a true elder brother who was willing not to just give up a part of his wealth, but all of his life to bring the sinner home into the Father's embrace. Jesus is the one that says to his father, I will go. I will go to the far country and I will seek out this brother. I will seek out him who is lost and I will bring him home at cost, at the cost of my own life, given on the cross to pay for the sins of the world. Jesus is the true elder brother who came from heaven to seek and save you and me and all of us at a great cost to himself. Not just a part of his wealth, but all of his life for you and for me. Though we had squandered it all, though we had been self-righteous and snarky, he came for us. He gave himself for us. He drew us home into the Father's welcome. And this same Jesus... In John 17, verse 18, as he's talking to his father before he goes to the cross, and as he's thinking about his disciples and his followers, he says to his father in John 17, 18, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Let me say that again. As you sent me into the world, Jesus speaks to his father. He says to his church, He says to his father about his church, I have sent them into the world. Friends, when you and I witness the welcome of the father through Jesus Christ, our elder brother, our hearts are melted, our wills are humbled, and we come to him and we worship him, and we thank him, and we cannot help but want to take this love and this grace and this mercy to others. Friends, you squandered it all. Oh, you were snobbish to all. But he gave it all to embrace you with his prodigal grace. How can we be a church that loves others? Prodigal church. Only when you recognize the prodigal love of the Father for you in His Son. The practical things we can do, friends. Go through the list of members in the WhatsApp group this week, for example. Practical ways we can show love. Find someone that you don't really know very well. Text them this week and say, Hey, the pastor told me to text you. Ask them how you can be praying for them, or is there something you can do for them? That's a practical way of showing love to our own body. 
Another practical way that we can show love in this pandemic is to know that the ones that are hardest hit are the middle income and the lower income, are those in the retail sector. So the next time you order a meal on Grab, the next time you take a Grab, the next time you spend money on yourself, tip. Give something extra. Be extra generous. Order something more. You can actually give a tip on Grab or on Gojek. And why don't you leave a note and say, Jesus loves you. Of course, don't leave uh, five cents. If you leave five cents, don't say Jesus loves you. Give a generous tip and say, this is because Jesus has loved me. These are simple, small things that we can do to love our neighbor in this pandemic. But friends, the truth is, these actions in and of themselves mean nothing unless they come with a motivation of love for God and from God. And I'll close with this story. Just this week, I read about a 72-year-old Italian priest. His name was Father Don Berardelli. He was a much-loved senior priest in the Diocese of Bergamo. If you've been following the news, Bergamo in Italy is one of the hardest hit by the COVID-19 pandemic. Father Don is a very respected and well-loved priest. He contracted the virus and he was put on a respirator. But because the healthcare system was so stretched, they didn't have enough respirators for all the COVID-19 patients. The 72-year-old Italian priest chose to give up his respirator for someone else. He ended up dying that week. And the other person lived. And of course, news of such self-sacrificial love went viral on Twitter. Everyone was asking why. Why would this man do this? They asked an American priest. And this priest simply quoted John 15, verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. Friends, do you know who John fifteen thirteen is talking about? Talking about your elder brother, my elder brother, our elder brother, Jesus Christ. He laid down his life for you. His friend. He came for you when you didn't deserve it. He gave himself for you while you were yet a sinner. And when that love melts your heart, when that love draws you into the embrace of your Father, you will know that no matter what happens to you here on earth, He will keep you. But more than that, you will be filled with a love, a desire, and a longing to love others, even as you have been loved. As you sent me into the world, Jesus says in John seventeen eighteen, so have I sent them into the world. Let's pray.
Father, I pray that you would melt our hearts once again with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Forgive me, Father, even as a pastor, for forgetting your gospel, for thinking that I'm better than others, for thinking that it's all about what I do for you. Help me, Father, in many hearts today to know that all that is yours is already ours in Christ. Melt our hearts again, Father, that we may truly love you and others as you have called us to love. And Father, I also pray for younger brothers who have turned away from the church, who have gone into the world to find satisfaction, and now here today find themselves in a terrible, terrible situation, unable to find their way out. I pray, Father, today that you would send your church and your people reaching out to these younger brothers to bring them home into the welcome of the Father's arms. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.